Welcome to the XA Podcast, the show that brings together the people that foster inclusive innovation across Southeast Asia. My name is Belinda Ong, and I am the Managing Director of the XA Network. Every episode, one of XA's members will lead a fireside chat or panel discussion with other members, founders, or investors that have shaped the tech ecosystem in this vibrant region. If you like what we have to say, please follow or subscribe to our show. And do remember to tell your friends and rate us five stars so others like you can find and benefit from all of our great content. Show notes are linked in the episode description and you'll find notes and additional resources there. Thank you everyone for joining us today. It is our honor to host Hari Krishnan as our guest speaker for this month's XA Fireside Chat. Hari is the Chief Executive Officer at the Property Guru Group, Asia's leading property technology company, where he recently led a successful public listing on the New York Stock Exchange. Prior to Property Guru, Hari started up, scaled, and LinkedIn in the Asia Pacific region as a Vice President and Managing Director. Apart from LinkedIn, Hari has successfully scaled operations in companies like Yahoo, Cisco, and Fox Interactive Media. We would also like to thank our interviewer, Petrus Poix, for joining us today. Petrus is an XA member and the Group Chief Information Officer at Gojek, Southeast Asia's leading on-demand cloud service platform. Prior to joining Gojek, Petrus worked at Orion Governance, GitHub, and Box, where he led and implemented business systems and operations at scale. Hari and Petrus, Thank you so much for joining us today. Without further ado, Petrus, the floor is yours. Thank you, Belinda and Harry. Thank you so much for uh, the time today. Excited to actually have this chat with you. Look, we, uh, we don't have much time here. Let me just get down to the business in here, right? Many, many questions, and let's you get to however many questions that we have. Harry, so your profile is amazing, such an accomplishment. So congratulations to you. So when you joined Property Guru six and a half years ago now, right? Yes. Uh, did you did you foresee or, or have always planned to that you would take this company public one day? So uh, you know, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast, and great to see many old friends on the call. But I think uh, no, I did not think uh, I, this company would definitely go public or anything. I think, frankly, I was just very open minded about it. The founders are old friends. Uh, one of them was a business school classmate of mine, and so, um, and uh, my wife and I had found uh, our home on the platform. So I had sort of consumer level loyalty. Uh, and a general sense of uh, the the value it was adding to the ecosystem, particularly in Singapore, and less of an understanding of what they were doing outside Singapore. I think the broader sense was more, this felt like another founding moment for the company. And I always feel successful technology businesses have multiple founding moments, not just the moment when they were incepted, but perhaps moments where they reinvent themselves. And that often in, involves injection of new blood, new leadership, new thinking. And I think when uh, Steve and Yanni sort of welcomed me on board uh, along with the, the investors, I think the goal was very much around resetting the culture, thinking about what is the vision, what are we going to build, rather than thinking about exit and uh, elements like that. And I think that is something which I got right in the process, which was making sure that the investors, in this case TPG, what were their goals? Because I, I actually asked them point blank, do you want me to just build something that you can flip in two years? Or uh, Because that's not my skill set. There are lots of smart people in Singapore who can do that. I'm the kind of guy who likes to come in, build a culture, build an organization that's going to thrive. I don't know if that gels. And so I think having that conversation before I signed made it clear. So I think IPO and all those things were very far away from, from my mind at the time. 
But here you are, you, you did your IPO, so congratulations again. Yep. Scaling a company has never been easy. You think about people, you think about culture, you mentioned about culture, you mentioned about, you know, and then there's the technology and processes and the hiring and so on. So can you just kind of walk us through journey of scaling the company as you go through the hyper growth stage? You know, so on hiring, this multiple questions here, right? On hiring, what did you focus most in, initially? And culture, what was the culture that you envisioned to create? And well, how did you maintain the culture as you go from five people or 10 people to now like 1,000 people and so on? So let's start with that first. I have some follow-up questions on this. I think one of the things that appealed to me intellectually with Property Guru was the fact that they had already built a successful company. It wasn't a startup. It was already a market leader. It had already existed for seven, eight years by the time I came along. And yet its growth rate has started to level off. And so it was more of reinventing a culture rather than creating one. So at LinkedIn, when I came in, it was actually a younger company and a smaller company than Property Guru. So I was part of actually building that culture from the ground up. Here, there was a culture. And so I had to figure out, okay, what is that culture and how do we evolve that? And I think uh, part of it was making sure, and you know, this is uh, the old cliche. I mean, if you work for companies or have worked for companies that talk about this, but we focused on the talent. I mean, what's the leadership look like? Do they have a common sense of mission? I'm a big believer in missionaries rather than mercenaries. So people who are fighting for the purpose rather than the paycheck. There's always someone who can pay more than you. So the question becomes more, are they going to quit as soon as someone gives them an offer? Or are they going to focus more on the purpose of the business? And one of the statements I made at the town hall when I took over from Steve and Yanni was I said, listen, you used to work for the founders. Founders tend to have an outsized personality, as they should, by the way. That's what makes them unique in in the business community. But you're not going to go from working for Steve to working for Hari. You're going to go from working for Steve to working for the purpose. I work for that purpose too. I'm the captain of this team, but we all work for that purpose. And so I saw my job as very much of being really clear about the vision and the mission and then repeating that ad nauseum. So I've been repeating it every quarter for the last six and a half years now. It, it actually takes years. It took our culture. I thought it'd take two years. It took the better part of three to shift it. I think it was a mentality around growth, a mentality of confidence. You're a market leader, behave like a market leader. Don't be threatened by startups, but at the same time, give them respect. So how do you focus on your customer? How do you have this culture of humility mixed with confidence? I think that's sweet spot. So you don't get arrogant, but at the same time, you don't sell yourself short. And I think a lot of companies, particularly in Asia, with the Asian bias to humility, I think they take it too far. And I think actually, ironically, even though PG is not started by people from Asia, sort of a deeply self-doubting culture when I came in. We, we, we were threatened by startups in every, every country we operated in, and we thought they were better than us. But objectively, they were far behind us in terms of market share, in terms of customer share, in terms of everything. And so there's a, there's a mentality switch that needs to start from the top, and that was my job. Got it. Now, what about hiring, Harry? I mean, what did you hire a person as you were trying to scale the company and you're growing the company? Why is your focus on hiring? So I think a couple of things. I think one thing I talk very often about is scar tissue. So you, I, I look for experience. I, people who had uh, tasted success, people who had failed, so they're not going to be scared of failure. So I wanted a good sense of how do you react when you get punched in the face? And how many times have you experienced that? You can say you're ready for it. Until you've experienced it, there's nothing quite like it. I remember when I, I failed the first time, and it, it comes typically when you're not prepared. So it is typically quite shocking, and any human being is going to take a while to react. But then how do you bounce back? I think that's one thing I really focused on. The second thing was very much about me. So as a CEO, I sort of was very much looking for people who complemented my skill sets. My natural preference is extreme risk-taking and pushing the boundaries as far as I could go. And so I think what I was trying to make sure was we had enough people who were checks and balances to me. 
So people where there was a mutual trust and respect who had a different personality bias. So it wasn't just that I was hiring for functions, so CFO or CTO or whatever, but also I was definitely hiring for personality types. So my definition of diversity is, is not as simple as just gender. And I think with Property Guru, we've been blessed with uh, racial and other diversity well before I came in. So I, I can take no credit there. So I think it was much more around diversity of thought. And you have people who think in different ways, uh, who have different experiences, and who can be checks and balances to me. Because the more of those people we got, the more aggressive I got in terms of my ambition and, and being able to lean into who I am. And so the analogy I often, I joke with our CFO, I said, my analogy is I jump off the cliff and we have enough trust that I'm not even checking whether you've tied the rope to my ankles. And I'm not even kidding. And the last couple of years, that's how this team has operated. I'm not even checking. We're, we're making huge bets, but it takes a while to build that trust. You don't take the big bets right off the bat. But I was solving for that diversity and diverse versus me as a starting point, and then diverse versus each other as we sort of built out the team. I love that. Love that, Emma, and leader. Like, think about diversity from early on. So, uh, hey, um, for all this, the, uh, you have technology also you need to scale. You also have the processes that you need to scale. Of all these things that you have to scale, what was the most challenging one to scale? And I'm sure that many people here are saying, what is it? Maybe this is something that you could also, some lessons learn from those in that area. The leadership to scale. I think it's one of those classic ones. There are a lot of people who can go from zero to 10 or 10 to 100 or 100 to 1,000. There are very few who can do multiple of those. And I think it often falls on leadership to make those calls quickly on do you have the right person or do you not? And I always say make decisions ruthlessly and then communicate them with compassion. Companies get it the wrong way around. So you've got to make the decision hard and quick. And then how you treat the person is with compassion. That's where the humanity comes in. So I don't believe in firing. A lot of companies and some of you work for those companies have debated with you. <laughs> I actually don't agree with that culture. I don't think that's how you build a particularly good culture, in my opinion, of course. But I think in my experience, the companies that get it right actually make the decision very, very quickly and then spend more time thinking about how do you treat the person now that you've decided to part ways with them. Obviously, I'm talking about negative decisions that are harder to communicate. A piece of advice I got from Reid Hoffman before I joined the company, he said the difference between a, a pure play entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial leader is an entrepreneur sees every problem as something for them to solve. And so as you grow a company, you're going to have more and more problems. Particularly if you're successful, you actually get more problems. That's your reward. And the difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial leader, as he defined it, was that entrepreneurial leaders know how to solve the problem, but they also know how to hire people to solve the problem. And they know how to hire people who can hire people to solve the problem. So they can scale. That sort of stayed with me from day one. That was advice I got before I started up with the company. And we definitely focused on people who knew how to lead leaders. And uh, very often they were hired well before the organization needed it. When I came in, the company was generating around $25, $30 million in revenue. It didn't need massive leadership, frankly, at that point. But we had a complexity, a geo complexity, <laughs> product complexity, which was significantly higher than the revenue would indicate. So you needed a maturity to be able to figure out, first of all, what do we shut down? We, a lot of what I did in the first year was just shutting things down. All our growth came from just, I think I shut down 80% of the initiatives that were at PG before I came in, in year one. We shipped no new products, no new pricing. Actually, we were a phenomenal product engine. We shipped no new features in the first year. It is the first company I've ever worked for that did not succeed in shipping a single feature in the first year that I was there. <laughs> and yet we took our revenue growth rate from 8% the previous year to 27% in year one. And so the board said, okay, what did you do? Because it's not evident from anything. You've not shipped anything, no new countries, no new, you've not bought anything. I said, well, we just stopped doing stuff. No one lost their job. We just refocused them on something. 
And I had no idea. I was just placing bets because there's no data as well. So just completely subjective opinions, right? There's this old cliche. Uh, if you have data, let's look at the data. If we're going with opinions, let's go with mine. And that's essentially what I told the team. I said, I'm the ranking officer at all times. So if you want to correct me, bring the data. Otherwise, it's my call. That's it. And I think it's easy to say that. When I started making the calls and projects started getting shut down, the data started getting <laughs> found suddenly. So I think it was an important cultural shift for the company. Thank you for that, Harry. This is uh, very insightful. Hey, uh, let's switch gear a little bit now to the uh, your IPO journey. Let's go through the scaling and then growth, happy growth. When did you decide that this is the right time now to go for IPO? And what were some of these indicators and or metrics that gave you this final confirmation, hey, this is the right time? So I think first off, I'd say to anyone in this call and to companies you're investing in, I'm not clear that every company should go public. I think public markets are, are fundamentally broken. I'm very clear about this. It's very hard. The incentives are very strange. That's a polite way of putting it. And so I think for me, it was more the result of the kind of investors we had built and recruited in, some of them preceding me coming in. I understand full credit. Stephen Yanni built a business when there was no exit. There were no VCs. There was no nothing. So you looked at our cap table. It was the strangest looking cap table I'd ever seen. So, but they had started in 2007. Like I love to say PG existed before the iPhone. So when you're building in that, you raise money where you raise money. You don't have an elegant a launch pad, there are no angels, there are no accelerators, there's no incubators, there's no nothing, right? Now, in that ecosystem, when you build it out and you have a particular cap table, you then need to give them returns. And when I came in and I started looking at it, there were basically two outcomes, trade sale or IPO. Trade sale for companies like us, we are in a particular vertical in tech where there are no global majors. The biggest company in China does not exist outside China. The biggest company in the US does not exist in Canada. Biggest company in Australia does not exist in New Zealand. They're not even able to go to the logical adjacent countries. So it was a unique problem set. And so we are part of maybe two companies that have done it successfully as multi-market, uh, Scout24 in a dark region of Europe. And uh, with humidity, I'd say PG in Southeast Asia are the only companies that have successfully scaled. There are other people trying it in the Middle East, et cetera, but they are smaller. So we'll see, maybe they'll also get there. And so I think it is, it's very much around First of all, do you need to go IPO? And it became pretty clear at some point the trade sale was going to be hard. We did cultivate and continue to cultivate opportunities there. But then I think the IPO path also became one where it created multiple options for us, where it divorced the outcomes for the investor from the vision for the company. What I mean by that is if the, if the investor wants to exit at some point, if they start forcing that, your entire strategy is going to go in that direction. So I needed something that divorced the two. And so by going public now, even though TPG and KKR are very clear, they don't want to sell down, at some point they will because they are financial investors. But now I've given them outcomes where they can either exit fully or do block sales. There's no dispute on valuation because I'm a listed script. And even if it's a trade sale, again, there's no dispute on the valuation. You know what the damn value is. So now it's just how much of a premium do you want to pay to take us private? So I think that solved a lot of problems and allowed my management team to continue to focus on building the business towards the purpose rather than thinking about okay, TPG wants this, or KKR wants this, or a new investor wants that. And I think that's a problem a lot of entrepreneurs end up in. If you have one really large investor, in the end, you can say vision and purpose and all that. They are setting the tempo if you don't create exit pathways for them. Thank you for that, Harry, again. Very, very insightful. So um, you said, okay, this is, this is the time. And you have to decide, right? Whether you want to direct list or you want to go through the very so hot big van SPAC, right? So, <laughs> so why did you decide to go directly listing to New York Stock Exchange? And also, now that you have 
been public for a while now. And uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on the current market condition and then both globally and originally here in South, uh, Southeast Asia? Yeah, I'm just glad we got it done. That's what I got to say. I'm glad I got money on the balance sheet. I got money on the balance sheet and I can smile. Uh, that, that, that's the way I look at it. No, listen, I think it's pretty open. I tried to take the, we, led by me, we tried to take the company public in 2019. Regular listing on the ASX. Did a lot of things right. Got re-kitted the board. Did a lot of cleaning up of structure and tax. Two things that no one, no entrepreneur ever thinks about. We went like super deep fixing Vietnam and Indonesia, the two most uh, problematic markets in which we operate in uh, from the outsider's perspective in that sense. Exciting markets, but from a tax and structure perspective, carry a lot of risk. And so we've cleaned up a lot of that. But then by the time we got to the finishing line, the Australian market had basically become a bloodbath. And so our board said, listen, we don't really need the capital. We're going to pull the plug. Incredibly deflating experience because you had spent basically the whole year on a plane flying all over the world trying to convince a billion people to put money into you. I know with ridiculously low conversion rates, like pretty much every other company. And then your board decides, I mean, I was part of it, but it was still not a, not a great feeling. But I think so we came into 2020 and we were just focused on building the business. I think what is gratifying is despite the CFO and I being gone, trying to list the business, 2019 was a record year for PG. It was the highest profitability, the highest revenue. So that told me we'd built the right team. They didn't need me or the CFO to actually put runs on the board. And so 2020, we had focused on just growing the business. COVID smacked us in the face. Unlike e-commerce and Zoom, et cetera, PropTech, COVID is an absolute headwind. It is a negative consequence. And the only benefit of it was every single one of our competitors was loss making. So they got absolutely crushed. And so our job was much more around how to navigate through it. And, and we came into 2021, we were, we were fine. And I think to your question, frankly, the, the SPAC thing was just floating in the ether. Every bank was coming, calling Joe and me and trying to get our time. And we took the calls out of curiosity. But finally, Bridgetown actually came to us through a warm introduction from another large investor who we had met as part of the 2019 IPO process. And they said, listen, if you're thinking about Southeast Asia, you have to talk to Property Guru. So it was a warm introduction from someone we both respected. And then we got to know Pacific Century and Thiel Capital, and we really liked what they did. And I think the lesson from 2019 is you need as many partners as possible to share your story. You may have a remarkable story, but you need a lot of cheerleaders going. We had TPG and KKR, two really phenomenal investors, and we still didn't get it done in uh, 2019. So 2021, we just unloaded the tank. Every single investor was required to go out and do press on our behalf, to go out and talk about us as if we the coolest thing ever. Leave absolutely nothing to chance. And because of that, we somehow crossed the finishing line. <laughs> so I have no doubt in my mind, it is a lot of effort from a lot of people. It's fine. I think it's, it was the right thing for Property Guru. I'm not clear that it, it's the right. If I was starting a company tomorrow, I don't know I'd architect it to, to, to go public. And what are your thoughts about the current market condition here uh, right now in hiring? I think it was a correction that needed to happen. I think the market, the valuations are ridiculous. I'm saying that as, a, as someone in the tech sector, it, it, the, most of the companies did not deserve the valuations they're carrying. There has to be some semblance of operational profitability. Uh, you can say NPAT's a bit of a joke for many of us. I actually can subscribe to that and agree to that. But you have to understand EBITDA. There has to be a concept of trying to say that you are going to earn more than you spend. Particularly for the companies who have been there 10, 15, you're talking series G, series H, I don't know when, they, when we put alphabets, I didn't think we thought we'd go that far down the thing. So it started getting a bit ludicrous that your company is 15, 20 years and still private, which are decacons or whatever the term is now. That sort of tells you public markets are once slightly broken, but also the private markets are that 
lucrative from an entrepreneur's perspective. I can just keep selling forever here because you're willing to give me whatever valuation I ask for. So I think there was a correction that was due, but I think no one saw this, right? I mean, this is a bit much. You have a war, you have a pandemic, you have interest rates all coming together. Though having said that, I have friends who claim the correction should be even more and more may come. So it's, it's really tough market conditions. There's no two ways about it. But I think there's a big separation between the companies that actually are showing their profitability and others. So you're seeing, like, even as we've listed, our share price is down about 15, 20% since we IPO'd. I mean, my personal portfolio is off by more than that. <laughs> so, you know, so I'm not unhappy with that. I think, relatively speaking, we're doing pretty well. So I, I, I think, but that's not good, right? When, you, when, when you're gone IPO, you're two months out and you're celebrating being down 20%. It's tough. It's very, very tough. But I think this is a, a world in which cash is king. You need cash on your balance sheet. You don't have that. You have nothing. So my advice to any entrepreneur is just get funded, raise money when you can from investors who can add value. And our investors added a lot of value in our path to IPO. Yeah, definitely. Cash is king. That's the uh, mantra, right? So speaking of the uh, so pre-IPO, many leaders typically focus on let's grow top line, let's grow top line, the expense of the, uh, the total EBITDA, right? I think you mentioned about EBITDA earlier. And uh, typically post-IPO, you see that many companies, uh, then leaders will start thinking about what's my total PNL and look into the uh, top and bottom line and what's my EBITDA. Did you see that the focus changed from uh, pre-IPO to post-IPO? And what's your focus now, given the market condition? I don't think you can go IPO without uh, an EBITDA story. Mm. Uh, if you do, the consequences are dire. And you, there's lots of data, case, uh, data points, some from our part of the world, some from the U.S., Companies that got their IPOs done in the frothy markets even two years ago, they got hammered as soon as they went out. And I think one of the biggest challenges, I was giving this advice recently to one of the large VCs in Southeast Asia. I said, you guys need to do a better job getting companies ready to go public because you're focusing so much on the commercial stuff and all of this incurs cost. Why I'm talking about this is this all kills your PL because if you're building it as if you're operating in a vacuum, I just have to focus on my COGS essentially and my revenue. You're not building a real company. I mean, who's going to pay for everything else? Who's going to pay for all the lawyers and auditors and accountants? And I would definitely say many of those things are highly overpriced, but you don't have a choice. You play in the real world. So you've got to play by those rules. So how does your PNL accommodate that? And I think a lot of VCs, potentially powerful angel syndicates like yourself, should start planting those seeds early. I don't think an early company should think about it. Don't get me wrong. But they should understand that at some point, the choices you make today in success could become a challenge for you. You may spend a lot of, we spent four or five months in 2019 cleaning up our structure in Indonesia and Vietnam. Four or five months. There's an argument to be made that if we hadn't spent those four or five months, we'd have probably got listed. The markets would not have been that bad. But it is what it is. I mean, that's what it, it, it was necessary now, I can say, to do. It would have been horrible to be a listed company and not have cleaned that. The consequences would have been even worse. So I think that path to EBITDA is something that if you're thinking of IPO, you have to already be on that path. Otherwise, don't bother trying that game. Everyone points to Amazon. I'm like, the fact that you keep pointing to the same one company sort of tells you how <laughs> exceptional that is. So don't point to that one company. Talk about the other hundreds of thousands of companies that have gone public. So I think that's the mentality I would uh, encourage people to have. It's also a little harder to answer the question, Petrus, because honestly, we've gone public in a, in a market where EBITDA is the most important thing. I mean, I'm still very focused internally on growth. Our revenue growth is still, we're trying to, uh, we're projecting north of 40%. We're going to try and keep sticking to that. So we want strong growth even at this point. But definitely the parts of the business now, which have a balanced scorecard, focus on profitability, operational profitability, I, I think that's very much part of it. 
Thank you. So I'm hearing like EBITDA. I'm sure say, there are things that you, you will advise some of those leaders right now who are considering taking the companies public. What are some of those things, Harry? I think first of all, you, you got to make sure your unit economics work. Right? I mean, it, it sounds like I'm saying something that's obvious. I think we can all think of uh, <laughs> several companies that haven't got it. If you just absolutely have no concept of fixed costs, if every cost is variable, you have a real problem. And I don't see how that business is going to be valued significantly. At some point, as I like to say, you've got to pay the piper. You can pull wool over the angel, maybe the VC, maybe the Series B investor, even if you're a good storyteller. At some point, somebody's going to look at your Excel sheet and not your PowerPoint. And at that point, <laughs> you're done. So you've got to be able to get unit economics figured out pretty early. And then you've got to start thinking about what are all the additional costs you've got to bear if you d- decide to go public. And it is an if. I, I, I can't stress enough. It was the absolute right thing for PG. I don't think it is the right thing for every company out there. And if you are, there's a lot of costs. And I'm talking millions. If you decide to go to the US, tens of millions of dollars of additional stuff that's going to show up on your PL. And you've got to be able to handle that. It is, it is quite scary. When you start seeing that, it's very real. And yet you have to bear that. Your DNO insurance, just the insurance for directors and officers, is millions of dollars a year. Something we didn't have to do in the past. But now you're going to get sued. For everything, you get sued. So you need, you need that cover. It's not something you think about. When you're building a business, you're not thinking about getting sued for frivolous stuff. But you are now if you're a public company. So you need to think it through. Understand you don't operate in a vacuum. Your investors may say you're super sexy. Go talk to a public market investor. I suspect they're going to test you on something very different. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Last question here, Harry. How do you celebrate this monumental event, right? How do you celebrate with your team? And how do you celebrate with your family? What did you do? Well, uh, my family. My family was down with COVID until two days before I got on that plane. So it was a, it was a, it was pretty damn close to me not getting on the plane to New York, which I mean, I would not have made this call. I, I guarantee you, if I had been in a different mindset, no, I think we really celebrated. We went hard. We were in New York. New York had just opened up, so we were able to do a proper listing. The U.S. stock exchanges really know how to throw a party, make you feel special. I don't think PG's ever felt better. The one anecdote I'll share from there has nothing to do with us. We were standing outside the stock exchange, and I think I shared this to Tony. And um, we looked across the road, and there was this couple who was excitedly taking photos of each other, the mother and son. And then our banker comes over and says, it's a couple from Singapore. They were here on holiday. They just happened to turn the corner, saw the New York stock exchange, saw the Singaporean brand up there, uh, got excited. So I I was live streaming with some family I, I don't know from New York because they were just so excited to see a Singaporean company listing over there. That was the best moment as a leader that's like the, the greatest feeling in the world like when you're not talking to you someone you know and they're celebrating but celebrations there oh, absolutely after parties which cannot be divulged over here <laughs> but really good it was really good celebration that's so awesome well thank you so much harry i mean it's such a good pleasure talking to you again congratulations uh, and uh, with that i want to turn it back to uh, belinda so thank you before we close as a reminder show notes are available on the link in the episode description. So do click through to get a summary and related resources. We hope you liked the episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. And if you did, please do spread the word about our podcast and take a second to rate us five stars. Thank you for joining us today. This was Belinda with the XA Podcast. See you next time.